It's the time of year when we're all thinking about goals and priorities. Now is the time to plan your next trip. Whatever kind of travel fills you up, whether it's lounging on the beach, connecting with family and friends, or going on a foreign adventure, Expedia has the tools you need to plan a great trip. Download the Expedia app or visit Expedia.com to start planning. You do need to be a OneKey member to use price tracking. Signing up is easy and free. Expedia, made to travel. We've all been there. You have a question about your credit card, you call the number for help, and can't get a hold of anyone. If you only had a Discover card. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right, a real person. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. I'm Oprah Winfrey. Welcome to Super Soul Conversations, the podcast. I believe that one of the most valuable gifts you can give yourself is time. Taking time to be more fully present. Your journey to become more inspired and connected to the deeper world around us starts right now. Think for a minute about the worst mistake you've ever made. And imagine if you were forever defined by it. I'm joined by Shaka Senkor. Shaka was raised as James White, one of six children in a blended family. His parents separated when he was 11 years old. Shaka says that's when everything changed. He lost interest in school, gave up his dream of becoming a doctor. He started acting out, and by the time he was 14, he ran away from home. He was soon recruited by an older drug dealer. When he was 19 years old, Shaka was convicted of second-degree murder and spent 19 years in prison, seven of those years in solitary confinement. Shaka says he takes full responsibility for pulling the trigger and taking a life. Shaka's riveting new memoir, Writing My Wrongs, paints a heartbreaking picture of how vulnerable he truly was. So what I would like to do is actually hear how it came to be that you, a 19-year-old young man, ended up in prison. So what was your life like growing up? So growing up on the outside looking in, um, I always say we had that ideal-looking family. A uh, father who worked, my father was in the Air Force Reserves, and he also worked for the state. My mother was a stay-at-home mother. Mm-hmm. And so middle-class black family. Middle-class black family. In Detroit. In Detroit, mm-hmm. east side of Detroit. And when did it start to go astray? So, from the time I can remember, there was always this element in the household, which was the physical abuse. Mm-hmm. Who being physically abused? My mother. Your mother my being mother. physically abused? abusive to us and her children. Mm-hmm. Um, and my father being a partner in that whole culture. And, and back then, I mean, we grew up in, in a community where whoopings were, that's the norm. Yeah. That's certainly how I grew up. Right. You get whipped if you yeah. for the slightest, slightest infraction. Thing. Don't right. you remember? Yeah. yeah, definitely. Like you're just doing normal kid stuff. I think the thing that probably left the deepest impression on me is one time I was coming home from school and I was like the smart kid in the family. And so my grades was like the thing that I was most proud of. Mm-hmm. And so I came home super excited to... How old are you? I'm probably in the fourth grade, so I'm assuming like eight now. Eight. I'm not sure yet. Right. And I came in and she was at the kitchen sink washing dishes. And I was like, you know, Ma, I got this score on my test. 
and she rolled around and threw a pot with like such force that it broke the tiles on the wall. That's a life-shattering moment when yeah, you think about it. Devastating. That's a life-shattering moment when you think about being an eight-year-old or nine-year-old coming home and saying, Mom, look at my grades. Yeah. Did you ever find out what was she upset about? I never knew. Um, my mother was upset often yeah. about small things. And I mean, I, I later discovered a lot of things that happened to her. Yeah. And, and that's how I was able to get past that. Yeah. You know, I was able to really step outside of the anger, the hurt, uh, the resentment, and really just say what happened to her to make her. Yeah, but that's the way you that can't do is. that when you're eight. You're not even thinking no, about that when you're eight no, or nine. You eight just, because you just want to be loved and, and yeah. appreciated. And hadn't you said, I want to be a doctor? Wasn't yeah. that your plan to be yeah. a doctor? Like, that's all I've ever wanted to do, like growing up. Like that was. And, and I think back to. Like, why was that what I wanted to do? And I realized that I like nice people. Mm -hmm. And the doctor was always nice to me. Mm -hmm. and, and even when my mother would take me to the doctor, she was nice. And like, I'm like, if I'm a doctor, and she'll be nice. And, mm -hmm. um, and so that, wow. Um, you just had an aha there. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Wow. So, um, yeah, just wanted to be a doctor. I get that. I get that. So, let me ask you this. Did you feel loved growing up? Um, I didn't feel like, like I was told, you know, I do this because I love you, but it was always a whooping or a punishment. Yeah, I mean, Shaka, I mean, I grew up like that too, where, I mean, if I were yeah. asked that question, yeah. I would, I would, I would say no. I didn't yeah. feel love growing up. So you grew up like I grew up. Yeah. You consciously, and you make this clear yeah. in uh, writing my wrongs. You consciously chose the street life. Yes. The life of the streets. Yes. Why did you consciously choose a life of the streets? Because in that space, I felt accepted. Um, so leaving home, and I was around other broken fragile young males that we banded together around our brokenness and we just like this is support this is love this is i got your back no matter what because that's what uh, gangs are are they not so gangs are being right. banded together around your brokenness yeah beautiful way yeah. to put it and so i started getting into like minor trouble breaking in houses stealing out stores fights in school and and i'm always like shocked now when i look back that nobody saw the drop-off. Like, you know, how does a kid go from on a roll scholarship to barely performing and not even wanting to do the work that... Yeah. One of the things that struck me is that you say time and again in here that nobody ever asks you, what is wrong? Why are you behaving this way? Nobody ever stopped to say, maybe something's wrong. Maybe he's not well, or maybe something's going on in his life. Nobody ever did that. People just beat you and kept moving. Yeah. So time and again, I was thinking, where was the moral code? Because as a little boy who's in, you know, striving to do well in school and has these dreams of becoming a doctor, you had a sense of what was right and what was wrong. What happened to the moral code? The environment, like, chipped away at that. You know, I was, I was, I was so naive. Yeah. Um, 
You and were so, a crack dealer by 14. Yes, crack dealer and crack addict at 14. Yeah. And that was also when you started to be sexualized and sexually abused. Yep. Women would sell their bodies to you for a piece of crack. Correct. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, and, and in that space, the, the thing is, it's a normalized behavior for young men in that, in that space, and it's seen as this twisted rites of passage. Yeah, and one of the things that I think it's so important to understand, and you make it very clear in uh, Writing My Wrongs, is that the culture, the entire environment, uh, perpetuated this idea that your virility, your strength, your power was who had the most money, who had the most attention, and you got attention through being the bad guy. Yeah, when I look back now, you can just see like that's what the quest was, power. Yeah. And it became like your reputation becomes everything. Yeah. One of my greatest lessons of The Oprah Show all those years interviewing thousands of people was that I could see that there was a common denominator in our experience. Mm. And more than power, what people are looking for is validation. Validation, yes. They're looking yes. to see that they matter. And what I see from your life in the streets, the street life, and I think what a lot of people need to understand when we're looking at what's going on in inner city neighborhoods with a lot of our youth is that's where your power comes from. That's where your validation comes from, right? Like, do you matter to yeah. somebody? To somebody. Somebody will know I'm here. Somebody will know I'm present. You will not ignore my existence on this earth. And, and just unfortunately, we haven't figured out how do you empower young men and women in communities where powerlessness is the norm. Yeah. How come those young men and women, you included, don't get that the way to success, the open door to freedom is, you know, education, is all the things that you later came to see for yourself when you were in prison. So w what's missing in the neighborhoods that kids don't get that, oh, this isn't the way, but this is? Yeah, so as a mentor... Because at one time you did know it. I in the fifth know, grade, right, you knew it. Right, right. And it's believing it. And it's which dialogue do you really believe the most? Yeah. Do you believe that you are a bad person who will never accomplish anything in life and that this is your lot? Or do you believe that you're worthy of the abundance that the world is willing to bestow upon you yeah. if you take these steps? I but get that. it's hard to see that through the pain, through the trauma, through... And what's um, being reflected to you daily, daily in your neighborhood, in your, neighborhood, in your life. In your neighborhood, in your household. In your household. Amongst your friends. That that mentality is so, like one of the things that... Oh, okay, okay, I got aha here. So it's very easy for people who are sitting back in their, you know, environments, whatever that is. It's very easy to say, well, look at me, right. look at what I'm doing, because they're not walking in your shoes, they're right. not in that neighborhood, they're not in that house, right. they don't see what the culture is. Yeah. And, and you have to you have to see it. You have to listen. Don't go anywhere. More to come after this short break. No two travelers are exactly alike, and that means no two trips should be either. Texas' vast landscape of cultures, regions, destinations, and activities allow for an infinite number of different travel experiences. Are you a beach person? Well, you'll be having fun under the sun with Texas' 350 miles of coastline. If you're more of a rugged vacation type, there are campgrounds, hiking trails, and state parks galore. 
and foodies can't get enough of Texas world-famous barbecue and Tex-Mex. Enjoy live music, visit internationally recognized art museums, and check out thrilling cowboy experiences. And now, Travel Texas offers a -a one-of-a-kind online trip builder that allows users to generate a custom, visually-led trip matched to their unique interests. Visit TravelTexas.com slash GetYourOwn to get the only trip to Texas that matters. Yours. That's TravelTexas.com slash GetYourOwn. Did you know that it's Asian American and Pacific Islander Heritage Month? Macy's is highlighting some really cool AAPI-owned brands right now, like Cardon, Kaja, Amelia George, and Hey Meave. Plus, you can help to support college access and student success when you donate online or round up in-store to APIA scholars. APIA is the nation's leading nonprofit organization devoted to the academic, personal, and professional success of Asian American, Native Hawaiian, and Pacific Islander students. Shop Asian American and Pacific Islander-owned brands at Macy's.com or in-store. So, let's start with the day you were shot. Yeah. So, I'll never forget the morning. It's March 8th, 1990. A couple of days prior, I had an argument with an old girlfriend. Um, she told her boyfriend, and he pulled up. I'd never seen this guy a day in my life. And we had a little back and forth, and I'm like, we get out of the car, we can fight. And instead of getting out, he just started shooting and shot me three times. And I remember I ran into this lady's house, and she was just like, no, don't come in here, don't come in here, don't come in here. And then I ran out the side door, and then as a guy on the block, who I knew, he knew us from selling drugs, whatever. He came out with a gun and, you know, kind of escorted me back to safety. It sounds like a war zone, you know. Yeah, so he drove me to the hospital, um, got me in, and they pretty much pulled the bullets out, patched me up, was like, you go get this prescription and you can go back home. So the next day I was back in the same neighborhood on crutches, no intervention, nobody to say. You're going to carry all these feelings, this fear, this paranoia. This shouldn't have happened to you. And I began to just like internalize all these different things. You know, all the conversations of, you know, worthlessness, not feeling like my life mattered or not feeling like I could be safe. It was like it went from this fear to like this anger Mm -hmm. and like this sense that I will never allow anybody else to hurt me. And so from that point forward, my gun was never out of my reach. And I became fixated with that. With like, you know, if conflict arises. You have your gun. I got my gun and I'm shooting first. And so. At 17. At 17. Mm -hmm. And so 14 months later, uh, I was DJing a party and an altercation broke out at the party. And so we ended up leaving. And we're coming back down the street, and um, and the car pulls up. And the guy called me from the back seat, and I realized that it was a high spender. Um, he would come multiple times a day from from the suburbs, and he usually came and spent you know three four hundred dollars every trip. But we had an agreement, like you never bring anybody to my home. And on this night, he was with two guys, neither of which I knew. And that's how me and David ended up getting into an argument. Because he was like, well, just make the transaction. And I was like, you don't have nothing to do with this. So we started arguing. It was kind of like, you know, just get off the block. Like, y'all got to go. Um, and they just refused to leave. So So you got three guys in a, in a, in in a car. car. 
they're trying to buy drugs. Yeah. You don't know two of them, so you are saying, I'm not going to do this because I think one, maybe one of you are the police. Right. Now this argument has escalated to like high level now. And I pulled a pistol out and David opens the car door. And when he opened his car door, um, that triggered the fear of being shot or being hurt. And I just turned and shot um, multiple times. And I immediately knew it in my soul, like that I had just caused this man's death. It was just like this darkness. It was just like, like this is it. Like you, like you've taken somebody's life. And then the kid in me was like, I just wanted to run away. And in that moment that you realized that you had taken another man's life, what did you feel? I felt like everything else was a facade. I felt like it was fake. It no longer felt, the reputation no longer mattered. It's just like, this is real, and I was scared. Like, I felt scared. Yeah. You say here, I didn't know where the shots I fired had landed, but something in my soul told me a terrible thing had happened. In that moment, I knew the guy had died. Yeah. yeah. You know what's interesting uh, that struck me in your Writing My Wrongs memoir is that I could tell that you were a, a nice guy, you were a good person. Because even when you were getting in all the trouble, this is how I could tell, that the moment you were going to kill yourself, there was a moment before this happened. Can you tell us about that moment? Yeah, so um, me and my friends, we were just sitting up one night, we were drinking, and I was like, I asked him a question, like, what if I decided to kill myself? Mm -hmm. And I, in that moment, it was a cry for help for my friends who probably couldn't help themselves, but they just thought I was playing because I was like the, the tough guy, the, you know, the, the street savvy cat. And, um, and so when I got home, I allowed that thought to take root in a way that it started growing. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm like, wow, what, if, what, what happened if I did kill myself? Like, would they finally care? Mm -hmm. Like, would my mother really, like, care at that point, you know? And so I went home and I had a shotgun and I was like, I'm gonna do it, you know? Um, because the feeling of not being loved by the, the, the woman who gave birth to you, I wanted that to go away. Mm -hmm. And I wanted that final moment to be for her to say, wow, he was special and I should have loved him, but I didn't, so. You're gonna kill yourself so your mother would finally say, I'm sorry. Yeah. 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 And so I should have loved you more. Yeah. Yeah. And so I thought about it, you know, I, I, I had the shotgun. And then I just like thought about my nephew. You know, what would that be like for my nephew or my family to like see that level of devastation? You know? Um because yeah. my nephew he used to climb down the stairs like every morning and wake me up to get cereal. Your two-year-old nephew. Yeah. Well, that's when I felt I knew that there was, in that story, something redeemable 
that you are a human being worthy of redemption because in the moment of your greatest pain, when you're thinking, I want to kill myself just so I can end this pain, and so maybe then my mother will love me, you think, I don't want to do that because my two-year-old nephew who comes down the stairs every morning will find me here, and what will that do to him? Your ability to love and care for your nephew is what kept you alive in that moment. Wow. So you weren't so hardened that you right. had no love. Okay, right. Yeah, you had enough. What, what made me like open my heart to your story is that in spite of everything that had been done to you as a little boy, makes me want to cry, that you still didn't want to do that to another little boy. So this is what I don't understand. Okay, so you're in prison and you decide that you're going to have the same kind of attitude in prison of dominance and control that you, you did on the street. Did that work for you? Initially. It did. When I first went in, I had no expectations of ever getting out. When I was 19, I had been sentenced to a total of 17 to 40 years in prison. At 19, you can't even see two weeks down the line, let alone... 17 years down the line. Yeah. So I rebelled from the very first moment. Uh, I attempted to escape. I got into physical altercations with other guys. Yeah. It's a very violent culture, very broken culture. And in that environment, it's better to be feared than to be fearful. Mm -hmm. And what I knew about myself every day was that I was willing to die or kill for what I believed in. What did you believe in? What was your belief? It was so distorted. The belief was like survival of the fittest. Okay, it was a straight, it. primal, barbaric. Um, this reputation that I brought from the street now lands in prison. Yeah. And you realize very quickly that there's this, this battle where everybody's juggling for who's going to be the man. Yeah. In spiritual law, which we talk a lot about on this show, it's a culture... Uh, it's a broken culture that feeds your brokenness. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah, and reinforces everything that you've been taught negative about yourself. And that becomes, the more negative you are, the more validated you are in the environment. In that environment. In that environment. Yeah. And so it's the complete opposite of... What life is. What life is. Yeah. Like it's just a different... Culture, um, Which, I, you know, I want to stop you here because I think that's what people need to understand. First of all, 90% of the people are coming out yeah. at, some point, at some point. And we are creating these prisons and institutions where there is no sense of rehabilitation. Nothing. But you go into this world where you are consistently dehumanized to be punished for the dehumanization that you brought to someone else. Mm -hmm. And people come out worse than they were when they went in. Yeah. 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 This episode is brought to you by PNC Bank. Some things should be boring, like banking. Boring is safe and reliable. You don't want your bank to be entertaining. Entertaining is for podcasts with inspiring celebrity guests, not banks. PNC Bank strives to be boring with your money so you can be happily fulfilled with your life. PNC Bank, brilliantly boring since 1865. Brilliantly boring since 1865 is the service mark of the PNC Financial Services Group, Inc. PNC Bank, National Association, member FDIC. The next generation of influential Black voices can be found on NPR's new collection, Black Stories, Black Truths. 
Black Stories, Black Truths is a celebration of Blackness from NPR. Each of NPR's Black voices are as distinct, varied, and nuanced as the Black experience itself. In the Black Stories, Black Truths collection, you'll hear stories of joy, resilience, empowerment, and creating world-shifting things out of struggle. Every episode is a living account about what it means to be Black today, told from a unique Black perspective. From Bobby Shmurda to The Wire, Michelle Obama to Reparations, there's no limit to the range of Black stories, Black truths. Black perspectives haven't always been centered in the telling of America's story. Now they are the story. In NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, you'll find a collection of some of NPR's best podcast episodes celebrating the Black experience. Stories should never be about us without us. Listen now to Black Stories, Black Truths from NPR, wherever you get podcasts. While serving his 19-year sentence, Shaka spent a total of seven years in solitary confinement as punishment for assaulting a guard and other inmates, attempting to escape, and many other violations. And explain what that feels like the first time you're taken to solitary confinement and what that's like. So the prison is his own other world. And solitary confinement is a subculture of this world. It has its own language, it has its own rhythm that's very different from general population. You're still on a row though, but you're, and you're next to other people. You're just right. alone in your cell. You're just that's alone in your cell. Yeah. But the thing is, that environment, the level of mental illness in there is unbelievable. And people screaming all night. Screaming all night, beating on lockers, throwing feces and urine on each other. Because you're in solitary confinement, you're allowed one hour a day. One hour out on the block, is it called? So it's a it's basically like dog kennels. And when they come to get you from the cell, they cuff you up and the cell is attached to a dog leash. And they walk you down the tier, take you outside, put you in a dog kennel. So you get access to that five times a week. It's a very cold, indifferent, barbaric environment. And in that cold, indifferent, bizarre, out of touch with our reality uh, environment, your transformation begins. Yeah. While behind bars, Shaka had begun a journey to discover his true self. He became fascinated by books written by Malcolm X and Donald Goines and spent hours writing and reflecting on his past. Then, six years into his sentence, he received a letter from a woman named Nancy, the godmother of David, the man he had killed. Nancy's letter became the genesis of Shaka's transformation. What did she say to you in that letter? So she started off telling me who David was. He had a 10-month-old son that he never got a chance to see his first birthday. He had a daughter who was struggling greatly. But she wanted me to know, like, the hurt that I had caused, the devastation I caused uh, their family. Um, but she went on to say, despite that, that she loved me. I didn't know what to do with that part. You know, and then she said she forgives me. Like, I, I just couldn't imagine how this woman could love me knowing that I had caused her and her family so much devastation. Were you able to receive that at the time? Mentally. Mm -hmm. So mentally, I got it. Um, but on a deeper level, it was the seed. In hindsight, looking back and watching the incremental growth, like that was the seed that was kind of blossoming. 
Because and the first time you received that letter, it let you know what? It let me know that I was redeemable. And wasn't that the first time, too, that you came to understand that this was a life you had taken, that this was somebody's life, somebody's son, somebody's brother, somebody's father that you had taken, and that up until then, you really kind of, in your distorted thinking, blamed him for being in the wrong place, blamed him for yep. saying whatever it is he said to you, and so you felt justified in firing those shots. Yeah, it was my way of excusing away the behavior. Yeah and of not taking responsibility. And so the humanizing of who he was, because in my mind, there was no face, there was no father, there was no brother, there was no son, there was no friend that makes people laugh. He was just a person who caused me to mess up my life. Hmm. That's it. He caused you to, to mess, mess up, up my life. Wow. So it did two things. It humanized David, mm -hmm. but also went into this different type of funk. Because now because you fully now realize what fully you fully realize what I've done. Yeah, got that. It cracked you, but it didn't open you up. Right. Yeah. So the epiphany comes in solitary confinement. Yeah. I was waiting on mail call, which is, and you're in solitary confinement, it's absolutely the most important part of the day outside of eating. And largely because you're hoping that somebody just thought about you and somebody cared about you. And this particular day, I got a few letters, and, and I got one from my son, my oldest son, Jay. How old was he at the time? Around about 11. 11. Yeah. When I opened the letter, everything, all the street savviness, the, the prison toughness, like it just crumbled to the ground. Because for the first time, I was seeing myself through the eyes of a child I helped bring into this world. And I read the letter, and he said, my mother told me why you was in prison. Tell me what the whole letter said. Dear Dad. Dear Dad, my mother told me you was in prison for murder. Dear Dad, don't murder anymore. Jesus watches what you do. Pray to him, and he'll forgive your sins. That part is what just shattered everything. It was like, I can't, whatever I do, if I never get out of, prison, I refused for that to be the legacy for my child. Like, I couldn't go through the rest of my life with him, that being the final way that he sees me. And it was heartbreaking. It was heartbreaking on so many levels. It was the first time that I actually even was able to, to look at myself as this monster in my child's eyes. You certainly knew you were in there for murdering someone. and. Your son saying, I heard you're in prison for murder? Yeah. Is that what did it? That was part of it, but it was the other part, that Jesus watches what you do. Jesus watches what you do. And for this child to have this view of life, of good and bad, evil, and I'm being placed in this category where I'm not what a father is to a son. Mm -hmm. I'm not a hero. Mm -hmm. I'm not the provider. I'm not a role model. Mm -hmm. And now what's amazing to me is how could you possibly thought you were before? Because the abnormal is normalized in the space that I came from. Okay. You know, you talk to guys that hustle in the street, what are you hustling for? I'm hustling to take care of my family. I gotta get this money so I can make sure I provide for my family. 
I wow. got to protect the block because I got to make sure my family is good. Mm. So it's distorted. It's everything is turned upside down. Yeah. You know, in the hood, the bad guy is the hero. But your son writing you that letter was the beginning of that your the, awakening. That was the awakening. Your born again moment. Yeah. yeah. That was the moment when I decided that I would never go back to the darkness and that I had to find my light and that I owed it to him to find my light. What your story says to me is that the power of love is transformative because your love for your son and your desire to be better came from not wanting your son to have that as his only perception of his father yeah. as somebody who was in jail for murder. Yeah. Since Shaka's release from prison in 2010, he has been a vocal advocate for criminal justice reform. He mentors kids in his community, teaches classes at the University of Michigan, and has earned a fellowship from the MIT Media Lab. At the heart of his work is raising the collective consciousness that every criminal should not be defined by their past mistakes and redemption is possible. You are an anomaly. You have been able to transform your life, but based upon everything you've shared here today and what's going on in the prison system, it's not about reform. It's not about change, it's not about transformation, it's not about rehabilitation. So people come out worse than they were when they went in, for the most part, it's what you said, it's what you're gonna do with that time in that cell, but that's up to each individual to decide that, and so hard when the whole environment does not lead you to that space. So how do we as a culture, as a society, then change that and be able to move forward? I think the first thing that we have to do is acknowledge that we're wrong. That we've just got this thing wrong. Like the system is wrong. I would agree with you. You have, at any given time, over two million people incarcerated. Millions of families impacted. And the reality is the majority of men and women are coming home. And we have a conscious choice as human beings, what kind of men and women we want to come home. Do we want them to come out more predatory, more barbaric, more inhumane? Or do we want them to come out and reintegrate into society as taxpaying citizens who have made a poor decision and who can now move on with their life? Yeah. And I know that people think I'm an anomaly. I don't personally think that because I see men and women who have transformed their lives. They just haven't figured out how do they reemerge in a society that's so unforgiving. Mm. That's the thing. It's like, how do you emerge? And it wasn't easy for me. Like, I, Oh, that's a powerful tweet. How do you yeah. emerge in a society that's so unforgiving? Well, yeah. that's true. Yeah. Because everybody's just standing in judgment. You're right. Whatever you've done in the past, we're going to hold that to you. That's why people want to know what your rap sheet is and what did you do and what it was for. And, you know. So unless you have that personal commitment, that, that deeper yeah. transformation, because it's more than just, hey, I just want to get out of here and I want to do the yeah. right thing. You must be born again. You have to be born again. You must be Otherwise, you're not going to survive the onslaught that you're going to be faced with. Yeah. And I faced it. So well, I know I went in and did an interview and was like, should I get the job? And then the higher-ups are like, well, he's second-degree murder. I don't feel comfortable in his workspace. Went to rent an apartment, and they was like, as long as you have a felony, you can't rent here. I'm like, I can't take the felony off my record. It's there. It's, it's there. It's never going to go away. So basically, they were saying you're never going to be worthy to live here. And so those barriers, they're there. 
you know, and the reality is we can fix that. Those things are fixable. Mm -hmm. Like somebody having decent housing and an opportunity to be employed, those are fixable things. And we just haven't done it. So now what do you see as your calling, Shaka? What's your calling? To raise awareness that, you know, the young men and women in our community, they are redeemable. They're valuable. That the men and women inside prison are worthy of a human touch. And that we can, you know, with just a little bit of hope and love, like we can transform millions of lives. Mm -hmm. And I believe that's my life's work is to talk into those space that makes people a little bit uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. Forgiveness is, complete that sentence, forgiveness is. Freeing yourself from angers that stand in the way of your growing as a human being. How are you able to forgive yourself? By stepping outside of myself and really seeing the little boy who is born with goodness. And that's been the hardest Part of my journey is forgiving myself about the murder. I've been able to forgive myself about a lot of stuff, but that part has been hard. Mm -hmm. I know you in the book you write um, your victim, David, a letter. Yeah. And you did that for, you wanted to say. Yeah, I wanted to say that I'm sorry. Like that that night I made that decision. And I wanted to say it to myself. Like that I made that decision. You know, he didn't make you make that decision. He didn't make me make that decision. That I myself was responsible. Redemption is. Being given a second chance to prove who you are authentically. As humans, we're all capable of making a poor decision. But we're fully capable of moving beyond those decisions and doing something meaningful with our lives despite that and not being held hostage by it. And, um, you know, I think about that word often when I encountered obstacles. And I've, all I've just ever wanted was a fair chance to just be a human. And to me, that's what redemption represents. It's like, just give me a fair chance to be a human. Thank you. Very Thank moving so to much. talk to you. Thank you so much for having me. Really. Thank you. I'm Oprah Winfrey, and you've been listening to Super Soul Conversations, the podcast. You can follow Super Soul on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. If you haven't yet, go to Apple Podcasts and subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. Join me next week for another Super Soul Conversation. Thank you for listening. Life is a highway. And on it, there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. So go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. One, two, three, four. Those are numbers. But you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. AutoTrader.